Well, if you would turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Amos uh, chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. And I'll read uh, verses 1 to 10. Amos chapter 9, from verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters out of the sea. And pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are you not, you Israelites, not the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations, as a grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. This is God's word. Uh, Where is your confidence uh, in escaping this this judgment from God that we've read about in Amos uh, many times? Now, of course, the answer, most of you, I'm sure, know, is Jesus Christ. But in our passage today, we're going to consider whether our confidence is really in him or whether we're putting our confidence elsewhere in some things that you can't be confident in. Amos has been tough going and hard hitting because the main theme of this book really has been about judgment. And we've basically seen different aspects of that same theme. So we've seen the the reason for the judgment, why it's deserved, We've seen what it's like to be judged by God. We've seen 
what it means to sin against privilege. We've seen a warning against complacency in our lives to take sin seriously. We've seen how to be ready for the day of the Lord. We've seen the call to return to him. And we've seen, I hope, over and over again, the mercy of God. That's been a constant theme, the mercy of God. And as New Testament people, as we've been reading this, the, a common theme that we see over and again is that Jesus Christ takes the judgment of God on our behalf and he is the only way of salvation from facing this judgment that we all deserve. When we get to Amos chapter 9, verses 1 to 10 brings the judgment section to a close with a, a sense of finality that sums up all of the lessons we've learned so far. Uh, there is a sense of finality and certainty as we look at these verses. And this finality is shown in the very first verse, actually, when we look at the name Lord that is used. Look at uh, verse 1. It sa- Amos says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Now, normally, when we read the word Lord for the people of God, you'll see it in our Bibles with the capital letters, L-O-R-D. And that's the translation of the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God for his people. But here, you'll see in your Bibles that it's small letters, L-O-R-D, which is a translation of the word Adonai, which is not the covenant name of the Lord for his people. And it's almost as if Amos is saying, this is no longer your covenant Lord. Or you are no longer God's people. It is as if God is showing that in the end, Israel have shown themselves not to be the covenant people of God. And the reason for that is their rejection of God. Their utter rejection of God's word and his call to them over and over again in this book. And as we look at this final passage of judgment, I want us to consider the question... Where is our confidence that we will not face this same judgment? Where is our confidence that we will escape the judgment that we all deserve for our sin? And in this passage, we see three truths that we can have confidence in. Two negative, things we can't be confident in, and one positive, something we can be. So first of all, Be confident that you can't run from God's judgment. Be confident that you can't run from God's judgment. Look at verses 1 to 6. If you're hoping to escape the judgment of God, you can't just run away. And the fact of not being able to escape is is what we see in verses 1 to 4. And the confidence that this is the case is what we see in verses 5 to 6. So in verse 1, Amos sees the Lord standing by the altar. Now, the altar here is likely to be the one at the sanctuary at Bethel, and that was where Israel worshipped counterfeit gods. Here, in the place where counterfeit gods were worshipped, idols, the real God appears. Amos doesn't see anything here that represents anything. He sees the Lord himself. The point being, 
This is the true God appearing in the counterfeit temple. And the real God, with real power, calls for the destruction of this counterfeit temple of idolatry and and for it to fall upon all those who worship it. Now, for those of you that uh, know your Old Testament, you may uh, think of a story where a false God's temple fell upon the worshippers. Can you think of what that story might be? It was the story of Samson. Samson was in the temple of Dagon, a false god who was worshipped by the Philistines. And Samson asked God for strength to destroy the Philistines, and this is what we read. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. What Samson does here to the Philistines is he, he is God's agent of judgment for them against their sin of worshipping idols. And Amos sees the same thing happening here to the people of Israel. We read at the end of verse 1 that no one will get away, none will escape. Just like what happened here in Samson's time. And the inescapability of this judgment is the theme of really verses 2 to 4. So in the vision, people are trying to escape, but they can't outrun the long arm of of the law of God. And it's pictured using extremes. So in verse 2, notice that people are digging to the depths and climbing to the heavens. Two extremes, the depths and the heights. So as low as you can go and as high as you can go. But God's hand will reach them there. In verse 3, they go to one of the highest points in Israel, Mount Carmel. That's over 1,800 feet above sea level. And then they go to the bottom of the sea. They think that God won't see them in these places, but God does. And notice in verse 3, God's sovereign control over judging here. He hunts them down and he seizes them and he commands the serpent to bite them. By the way, if you're wondering how a a serpent can survive at the bottom of the sea, uh, the the word serpent there is a a sea monster. Uh, In other places in the Old Testament, it's translated as Leviathan. But it doesn't really matter, the scientific biology of the serpent. The point is... You can't escape the long arm of God's law. And in verse 4, we see that even exile itself, which is a form of judgment, will not mean that they escape the promise to be destroyed. And then at the end of verse 4, we read these chilling words. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. And that's so chilling because normally when we think of God keeping an eye on them, we think of him keeping them safe. So if you were to say to me, to, Steve, can you keep an eye on my child? I know what you expect me to do. But here, the eye is for harm and not for good. The point is, you cannot escape, you cannot run from the judgment of God. Now, we've heard this kind of thing in Amos before, in in chapter 2, verses 13 and 16, in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. 
But here, the point is that you can be confident that this is the case. Why can we be confident? Because of the nature of the God who is speaking this word. Look at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 begins, The Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is the God who has power, in verses 5 and 6, over all of creation. So in verse 5, he touches the earth and it melts, causing mourning. It speaks of the river Nile, which was known to flood each year. But here, the land rises up and then sinks down. In other words, it will be ruined. And in verse 6, the Lord is controlling the top to the bottom of his creation. He's building in the heavens. He's setting foundations in the earth. The waters, untamable to a mere man, are called for by God and they do his bidding. So hopefully in these verses, verses 5 and 6, you can see the mighty power of the Lord Almighty. In these verses, he touches, he builds, he sets foundations, he calls for waters. All of creation is under his command and it will obey his voice. And when God causes his world to turn against his people, they mourn and they sink and they drown. He is not some counterfeit small g God who fits our imagination. This is the all-powerful king of the whole universe who will be glorified. Now maybe you have some kind of confidence that you can run away from God's judgment. You may think or believe it won't really happen. That's one way of running away, to, to just think, I don't believe it. You may be under the delusion that you're not really deserving of it. You know, I'm, I'm not that bad. Other, other people are way worse than me. Some people try and run away from it by just not thinking about it. But you can only be confident of this according to verses 1 to 6. You, you can't run. You can't run from the judgment of God. Now we're going to see that instead you need to run to the Son of God who was judged for us, but you can't run from God's judgment yourself. Now we live in a world that tries to run away from death, whether that be anti-aging, making an idol of health, calling a national emergency because it's hot. There are even people that arrange for their bodies, this is true, right, to be frozen when they die in the hope of resurrection. People pay lots of money, not lots of people do this, but some people who have more money than sense, pay money to freeze their bodies so that one day, when science improves, they can be risen again. But you cannot escape coming face to face with God. There's nowhere to hide. And for us today, we can be even more confident than in Amos's day because we have the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to look back on. And Paul, in Acts chapter 17, says this, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him 
from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves to us you cannot run from the judgment of God. And we'll see it also proves to us you can run to the Son of God. But don't make the mistake of thinking you can run away. Be confident that you can't. However, Israel had a special reason that they were confident that they would not be judged by God. They didn't even bother to to run away as such because they thought they would be okay. Because they had experienced the exodus. What we see, though, is that rather than being confident because of the exodus, you can't rely on past experiences. We can be confident that you can't rely on past experiences. As we've seen before in Amos, Israel were a privileged people. They were chosen by God as a nation to receive his mercy and display his glory to the world. They were God's chosen people. But their privilege did not make them immune from facing God's judgment. The problem for the Israelites here is that they based their confidence on a specific event at a specific date in their diaries. An experience of the past that they felt meant that they could forget about how they lived their lives. Look at verse 7. Are you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? The Israelites here are classed in the same level as the Cushites. Now, the Cushites were a faraway people uh, down in, in modern-day Ethiopia. Their name is synonymous with being far away from God. And God points out that Israel are just like them. They're far away from God too. Maybe not geographically, but they are far from God. And God points out that there are other nations as well that have had exodus experiences. The, the Philistines and the Arameans, they came from Kaftor and Kir, respectively. And God says it was him that brought them from those places. God is the king of the nations. He rules over them. Did the Philistine and the Aramean experiences of deliverance entitle them to protection from God's judgment? Well, nobody would argue that. The point being made here is that the Israelites thought that because they had this experience of blessing in the past, that they were entitled to God's blessing in the future, regardless of how they lived. And this can be a huge problem for us as well. We can base our confidence for our salvation not on what Jesus has done for us in dying for our sins, but in some kind of past experience or past event in our life. So, for example, some people might trust in a prayer that they've prayed long ago for conversion. Well, I prayed that prayer on that date. Look, it's in my diary But I've not lived for Jesus for years. I've I've not been to church since the Sunday after I prayed the prayer. But I prayed the prayer. So I'm confident, you see. I've heard people have false assurance about their children's conversion 
because they were baptized as teenagers or christened as babies. A past event that they say, well, that means they're definitely okay. Regardless of the fact that their child hasn't lived for Jesus at all. Even in our church, we've experienced great blessings in the past. We've experienced seeing people converted, which is wonderful, isn't it? Even today, we had baptism. Many of you were, were here when this building went up, a time of great blessing and experience for our church. But does those, do those events mean that it, it then doesn't matter how we conduct ourselves as God's people because, well, he's blessed us in the past? All of those things can give us encouragement when we look back on them, but they do not take the place of trusting in the one event that really matters, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and our response to that by living for Jesus today. I remember uh, vividly one particular conversation I had with somebody where they referred back to a prayer that they prayed and a past commitment to Jesus. They hadn't been to church for years, and they said to me, so am I okay then? To which I said, you have to be trusting in Jesus today. Today. We can't live like pagans and just rely on some past experience and think that we're okay. Because God's eyes are not on what has happened in our past experience. He's looking at what we're living right now. Look at the first part of verse 8. Surely the eyes of the Lord, sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. It's interesting to note how earlier in verse 3, people were trying to escape the eyes of God, but here we see he sees everything. And the Lord is not looking at your past experience. He's looking at present realities. And the present reality is these are not his people. This is a sinful kingdom. And they're going the way of all sinful kingdoms that reject his word. They'll be destroyed from the face of the earth. Now, this is not talking about a one-off sin where a Christian has, has fallen but repented. What we see here is a rejection of his word, a decision to live their own way and think that they'll get away with it because of a past experience of God's blessing. That's what we're seeing here. All Christians fail. We all sin every single day. But every single day, we also come before the Lord and we repent of our sin. This isn't talking about failure in the Christian life where we're repenting of sin day by day. This is talking about a rejection of God's word. And then a confidence that because something happened in the past to me, then I won't face the judgment of God. No. When we are God's people, having been recipients of his salvation... It will impact how we live our lives. We will live for him. So I ask you, are you trusting in, which means living for, Jesus Christ today? Are you committed to him right now? You can't rely on something you decided years ago or experienced in the past. Where are you right now today? 
But before moving on, I want to mention something else, which is kind of a, a, a reverse and perverse kind of way that we also rely on past experiences. Sometimes we can think we're not true Christians because of some past sin. It's kind of the opposite uh, to what we've just said. We think, well, some, some of us might think, well, because of that experience, I, might, I must be okay. But some of us think, well, because of that past sin, I'm never going to be okay. But that's equally folly as well. If we are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, it doesn't matter what those sins have been. It doesn't even matter if we don't feel forgiven, although we want, might want to pray that we do. Our salvation is only ever based on what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And we can rely on that to save us from our sins. And we can appropriate the truth of that in our lives every single day. So you can't rely on past experiences for your salvation. But neither can you rely on past sin to stop you experiencing salvation. Our salvation is only ever based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our confidence of salvation can never be in any personal experience, whether good or bad. It's based on the historical reality of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so as we put confidence in that, we see in the last verses something we can be confident in. You can receive God's mercy. In the middle of verse 8, we see a turning point in this passage with the word, yet. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. Note here the personal name of God being used again. Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Israel as a nation with its institutions will perish those who reject God will perish, but God will not totally destroy every descendant. Some, his people, his true people, to whom he is Yahweh, will be saved, receiving his mercy. Verse 9 speaks of the judgment of God being a sifting. Uh, the, the picture in verse 9 is of the nation being put into a, a sieve. Uh, we have uh, uh, sieves at home. Well, I, I do. I'm assuming most of you do as well. And in a sieve, uh, you might strain a, a sauce or, um, if you're old-fashioned, a, a cup of tea. And into the sieve goes all the bits that you want to throw away. And out of the sieve comes the juice or the tea or whatever it is that you want to keep. And in Amos's day, they would put grain into a sieve. And the fine grain would go through the sieve, and the pebbles and other large impurities were kept in the sieve and then thrown away. And at the end of verse 9, we read that not a pebble will reach the ground, which means that, again, no one will escape. But the point to recognize here is that God's true people will escape. They will be sifted and found to be his. Now, it's interesting to note also in that verse that Israel will be sifted among the nations. And we'll see next week how even people from other nations will be found among God's people as well. 
But what we see here is a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous, a theme which Jesus speaks about in those parables in Matthew chapter 13. God knows who are his people. And in verse 10, we see that he knows those who are not his people also. And those who are not his people are those who are confident in their delusions of security. Note verse 10. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake and meet us. The sinners will die by the sword. Who are those sinners? Those who think that disaster will not come their way. Those, if in other words, who are confident in themselves. So how then can we be part of those who go through the sieve and reach the safe ground? How can we have confidence that we will receive God's mercy? By trusting in the one who disaster did overtake, who disaster did meet on our behalf. We trust in Jesus Christ. He was struck. He did not escape. He did not run away from God's judgment. He did not even rely on his being God to save himself. He showed us mercy by dying in our place for our sins. And so now we can have confidence in being saved from God's judgment, not because of anything that we have done or we have experienced, but because we can trust in what Jesus has done for us. And we can be confident, too, that he has given us his Holy Spirit who lives in us, enabling us to be the people he's called us to be and to wake up each day and say, I believe that Jesus Christ has forgiven me for my sin. And as a result of believing in that truth, we can also say, by the power of the Spirit, I commit to following him as my king. And in a moment, we're going to come before the Lord's table, which is a wonderful place where we can again say, I believe and I commit. We can trust in what he has done. We're confident not because of our own goodness. We don't lack confidence because of our own badness. We put all of our confidence in Jesus Christ. And really, that's the the end result of this passage of judgment in Amos 9. It again calls us, as it does every week, to turn to Jesus Christ. And our final song reminds us, or our next song, not the final one, but the next song reminds us that we can have confidence in receiving God's mercy because of what Jesus has done. So we're going to sing a song. I don't think we've sung this for a while, but I'm sure um, most of you know this song. Uh, My faith has found a resting place. So we're going to stand and sing of our confidence that our faith is based on the work of Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing, my faith has found a resting place. And after we've sung, we'll come around the Lord's table together.
Uh, before you sit down, we're going to uh, say together uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I mentioned that it's important that we remember uh, to, 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 to remember what we believe and put our confidence in. And so we're going to say together what we believe before we come to the Lord's table. And in the Apostles' Creed, uh, we say together that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, uh, which is what we remember as we come uh, to the table. So let's say these words together. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please take your